Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fourth week of our series, Women of Redemption. This message comes from Matthew chapter 1 and the book of Ruth. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Sometimes when we come to church in this season, we're kind of expecting to hear the same story that we generally hear at Christmas. And again, that's, that's a beautiful story. Uh, you know, but we kind of think, okay, we've heard that many times. What we're actually doing through this Christmas season is looking at part of the Christmas story I think we seldom look at, we seldom study. Specifically, we're looking at what it talks about Matthew, about some of the, the genealogy of Jesus, stories about people that were in Jesus' line, specifically women who are highlighted there that tell us something about Jesus and his ministry. This morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Ruth. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, back in the beginning of the Old Testament, and, and, and Boaz, and, and this whole story. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me. And uh, if you don't, there's one in front of you. It's on pages 222 through 224. And uh, we're going to look at the story as we go along in the message. But let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to come and to be able to, to look at your word. Father, to be able to see things, to see things that is, that is taught here that maybe we don't look at very often, but that is relevant, that speaks not only about what happened thousands of years ago, but that, Father, that speaks about how you work in our lives and our time today, to tell us about who Jesus was, what he came for, and, and why that's important. Father, thank you for teaching me. I pray now that you get me out of the way and that you speak through me, that, that each one of us that are here today would hear your spirit speak to our hearts I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been talking in this stu- study that, that when we look at Matthew's gospel, he doesn't begin his gospel, his story of Jesus, in the usual way. Instead of jumping right into Jesus' story and telling us about Joseph and the angel or the wise men or, or anything like that, he starts by giving us a genealogy. Now, for most of us, when we come to a Bible and, and it has a genealogy, we just want to skip over it. You know, it's like, I'm not probably the only one that does that. You know, we just kind of like, well, what's there? What, what can be significant? What can be practical in a genealogy? And uh, why would Matthew begin his story with a genealogy? Well, we, here's part of the reason why. In our time and culture, if you were to introduce someone of any significance, you would start by saying, here are their accomplishments. In a sense, here are their resume. And, but yet, if you look historically through most of history in many cultures, when you introduce someone significant, you wouldn't start by listing their accomplishments. You would start by listing the accomplishments of their ancestors. You'd give their genealogy. That was almost like a resume. It was in a way of saying, this is how you could show that you're somebody, who you are, you know, what are your, what are your, what's your track record? Now, you would expect this list of these good moral, rule-keeping Jewish people and but when we look at Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew, you find some surprises. It's not filled with all the good, moral, healthy, well-respected people. And part of that is when we look at this genealogy, most of the genealogy, in fact, all the genealogies of that time would be male-dominated. It would be father and son, and they would just have the males. And generally, that's what we have in Matthew's genealogy, except he also gives us five women, and, and four of which are ones that generally you would have not chosen to put. You would, you'd almost ignore them if you can. And, and the way that they're not expected here, when you see these names, it was in a sense God's way of taking out a highlighter and highlighting and saying, you notice me, notice this, notice this story. Now, what we've seen in these past weeks is that 
why does he put them there? Well, part of it is that what we're seeing is that these, these, these lives, before Matthew gets into Jesus' story and what he da- did and what he taught, he said, if you go back and you look at the lives of those in his genealogy, their lives teach us something about Jesus, about who he was, about why he came, and about the nature of his life and about his ministry and about his message. You see, most people would have looked to a genealogy to establish their credentials. This is how my ancestors have performed. And and now let me tell you how I have performed, how I have earned my spot. But here we're told in Jesus' genealogy, there are people that were highlighted, that were drawn to, that, that their story was they didn't measure up. All of them, they didn't keep the law in one way or another. And, and what you see is that Jesus takes these, these people who would be excluded and he said, okay, by grace, I'm going to include them. I'm going to not only have them as part of my family, I'm going to celebrate that relationship. Because the gospel isn't about our merit. It isn't about our performance. And the gospel tells us that you can never be good enough to earn God's favor. That's one of the things we keep seeing here, that, that if it's about our merit, none of us could do it. All of us fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's, of God's standard. But when we look at this, what we're seeing is that it's telling us from the beginning. Jesus didn't come to give us a set of rules to live by. He didn't come to help us have a better resume so that we could earn God's favor in a sense. He didn't tell us how to fix, you know, fix ourselves spiritually so we can impress God. Jesus came to bring salvation, not through what we do, but through what he did through his death on the cross, where he took our sins upon himself. He took God's punishment for those sins upon himself so that all who believe in Jesus could be forgiven, have relationship with him. See, we can never be good enough to earn God's favor, but the nature of God's grace teaches us that you could also never be bad enough to keep you from his grace because it's all about what God does for us. That's the point of Christmas. That's what we see here, Matthew beginning his gospel this way. He's telling us that actually not just even Jesus and the whole of the Bible, going back to Jesus' family tree, God was always choosing the unworthy, the unlikely, the sinners, the, the people that were that were rejected by others because God has always been a God of grace and mercy. Now that's the big picture of the series that we've been talking about, but we're also seeing that each one of these people that are mentioned brings some unique aspect of of the story pointing towards Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at the story of Ruth. And uh, again, back in the Old Testament, and and, and we see it just in the genealogy in verse 5 of Matthew 1, we see her mentioned and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So there's a woman, she's highlighted. We looked at her story last week. And then Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And again, there's a highlight and it's drawing our attention to her story. Now, what we're going to see is that Ruth was not a story of of a woman who in any way failed morally or ethically. And actually hers is a great story. She's a hero to look up to. We, We have a book of the Bible named after her. But we're also gonna see that she was not a Hebrew. She was a foreigner and she was from a group of people that were despised and looked down on by the Jews. She would have been excluded because of her race. And when she came to Israel, she is a beggar. And and if you're trying to establish someone's credentials by their genealogy, again, this foreigner, this beggar, wouldn't be someone you would point to. But her life tells us something about the nature of Jesus in a ministry. So what are we going to look from her? We're going to see that it's not just about her. It's also about her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. It's also about her eventual husband, this guy named Boaz. And and we're going to start way back in Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to see that that her her mother-in-law and her father-in-law basically were caught in a time of challenge 
would force them to make a decision. Are they going to wait on God to provide or are they gonna trust upon themselves? So let me start Ruth chapter one, verse one. It begins by giving us the context of the whole story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. We're told there was famine in the land. There was financial uncertainty to the degree that people worried whether they would have enough to eat. But we're also told that it was a time of political uncertainty. And, and we're told here specifically that there were judges when the time when the judges ruled. Now, we know from the Bible that this was a time when there were rulers that were collectively known as the judges. If in fact, if you go to the book right before Ruth, it's the book of Judges. That's what the story is all about. And generally, these were really bad leaders and they really failed in significant ways. And the result was, well, let me show you what Judges says. The very last book of the, or last verse of the book of Judges, it sums it up this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, there was a failure of leadership. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they rejected ultimate authority. It was chaos. So here's the setting of the story. It was a time of economic uncertainty, of cultural confusion, of moral uncertainty, of failed leadership. All of it that was so bad resulted in a culture where everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Now, when you hear that description, does that sound at all familiar to anyone else? Kind of like our time. And so part of what we're gonna see in the story is this is how God works in times like what we face now. Now, in this context, this one family that we're talked about, Elimelech and, and his Naomi, they had a hard time seeing God to the point that they walked away from God to try to fix their problems on their own. And again, this is something that is understandable for, you know, from, a, from a worldly perspective. You know, they're looking at this and they're saying, okay, there's famine, there's uncertainty, things are a mess. So what they do is they leave the land of Israel where God is worshiped and they go to a land called Moab where God is not worshiped. And not only that, but we read in verse two, the key line here is they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. So at first there was a famine and they said, okay, well, let's go there to meet the need. But over time they settle, they become comfortable. And, and, and instead of just escaping the famine for a season, they now identify with this people, they live there. Now we don't know, you know, most of us are like, what's Moab? And, why is that significant? Well, let me even put a map here. There's a couple things. If you, this is a map of that time, and here's where you see Bethlehem. That's where they were living. Um, and in Moab is this area right over here. It's not very far, it's just across from the, the Dead Sea. And so there's a couple things. Number one is it wasn't that far from them to go from here to there when there was famine. But it was also not that far for them to go back when the famine was done. And what's significant is that not only is it that far, but this is outside of Israel. This is not part of the people of Israel. Um, and, uh, and they were not people that worshiped God. They were not people that, that obeyed God in any way. And, and so what you see here is that they had settled in a place. They walked away from God and his people. They settled in a place. And this was a people that not only did not worship God, but for various reasons. Some of it is their, their history and the background, which I won't get into. And then they're, they're walking away from truth that they knew that, that God spoke of them with, basically rejected them. In fact, let me show you this in Matthew chapter, or not Matthew, and uh, Psalm chapter 60. There's a Psalm and God is speaking about different groups of people and how he views them. And he starts by talking about different tribes of, of Israel. 
And he said, Gilead is mine, Messiah is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter. And he's saying, okay, these are my people, these people of Israel, and Judah specifically. You know, Judah, the tribe of Judah, from, and from the line of Judah, I'll bring forth a king, they're my scepter. And then he goes from the tribe of Israel to the next verse to Moab. And this is what he says of Moab. And Moab is my wash basin. Moab is my sink. You know, Moab is the tub that I go to to wash all the dirt. Or it actually could be translated, Moab is my outhouse. Now, when I think of things to say that were pretty critical towards a group of people, that's pretty critical. You know, that's pretty bad. In fact, I can't think of something a whole lot worse. But this is what God is saying. Why? Because they had rejected God. And he's saying, these are people that have nothing to do with, they rejected me. Now, one of the things we're going to come back to is God felt this way about them and we're going to see the people of Israel felt this way as well. They were incredibly prejudiced towards the people from Moab, uh, this negative light. Now, we have to ask, though, why would this family who lived in Bethlehem, in the land of Egypt, in the tribe of Judah, why would they leave this place of where God's worshipped and go to this place where God is not only rejected, but where God speaks of this people in this way? Well, it was a time of famine. And what was happening is they felt like God wasn't going to take care of them. And, and it, it reveals something that is a, a temptation for all of us even to this day. The temptation in times of difficulty, when things are difficult, when we feel like we are facing a season of, shall we say, famine, it's always tempting to walk away from God. So we can look at it and say, well, no, I don't think that God is loving and that is caring. And, you know, for his own reasons, he may allow us to go through times of difficulty, but eventually he's going to provide. No, instead, we can be like this family and we can say, well, no, God isn't reliable. And so we leave the place where God is king and, and we decide to make it on our own. You know, I think a lot of times what we may do is we say, well, I've been going to church and I've been obeying God. Well, and it hasn't worked for me. It hasn't, God hasn't answered my prayer. God hasn't met my need. God hasn't done what I've expected him to do. And so therefore, since he's left me hungry, well, I've tried that. So I'm going to try to do it on my own. And I'm just going to leave Bethlehem and I'm going to go, I'm going to go do it on my own. And that's what this family did. And in the short run, it might have seemed to work. In the short run, maybe they had more bread. But what happened is in the long run, it's always better to follow God. And at first they said, you know, they moved there and then they settled. And the same thing can happen for us. At first it's like, well, God isn't doing this. And so let me step outside of God's will. And over time, what happens is that we start to more and more make decisions that, that are based on what works for us, not what is based on what God's word says. And before long, we've settled. And in practice, we may say that we're a follower of Christ, but in practice, we're rejecting God's lordship over our lives. We're, we're you know, we've moved out of Bethlehem and we're in Moab. No, that's what they did. So, and they settled there to the degree that we're told that when their sons got old enough to marry, instead of going back to Israel and finding, you know, God worshipers in Israel, they found wives there in Moab and they, you know, they're raising their whole, you know, whole family there. And again, at first it might seem it's working, but sooner or later, what happens when there's a crisis? Well, if we look at Ruth's story, um, here we have this family, and first of all, Naomi's husband dies, then her two sons die. And so the result is now she is left there as a widow. She is in a foreign country, no means of support. And she realizes, you know, I'm a foreigner. They're looking down at me. They're not going to be kind to me. They're not going to take care of me. And she thinks her only hope is to return back to Israel. But if she does so, what I want you to see here in this, in this book is she doesn't think that God's going to be gracious towards her. 
She actually fears God's anger and judgment. Um, look, look, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 6 of, of, of Ruth 1. It says, Then she, speaking of Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And basically what she's saying to them is, You fulfilled your obligation to me. You know, now I need to go back to my homeland because, you know, because I need people that will care for me. But you're also widows and you need to go back to your homeland where people will take care of you, especially your family. You're young enough. You still have family that will take care of you. But both daughters-in-law, first of all, say, no, we want to stay with you. And look at what she says and the argument about why they should go back to Moab. Verse 11, Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become your husband? They may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, should I have a hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait, therefore, when they're grown? Would you refrain from marrying? Basically, you know, I'm too old. You know, go back, start a new life. But what really strikes out is what she says at the end of 13. I'm going to put this up here. She says, here's, when telling the girls not to go back with her, this is what she says. Know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, here's what she's saying. She's telling them, you know, don't go back with me because the land where I'm going, where there's the true God, he's out to get me. He's turned against me. You know, you don't want to go here because God is a vindictive God who's angry and who's judging me. And, you know, you don't want to go to that God. Now, what's amazing here is that we look at that and we say, okay, well, we don't know if for 15, 20 years, you know, if she worshiped God, but this suggests that they had walked away from the worship of true God. Um, again, she could have returned to Israel if she didn't, but, but it's not only that she's speaking of God this way, but look at what she says to Ruth. After the one, one uh, daughter-in-law left, she looks to Ruth and he says, okay, um, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her gods. You know, when you're in Moab, you worship your gods. When I was in Moab, that's what I did. And, and now you should go back to your God, which is being implied. So she's talking down God. She's encouraging her to go away. I mean, again, when you look at this, this suggests that, okay, these were not people that were thinking of God, worshiping God, when they were in this long time of sojourn in, in Moab. And yet, in spite of the fact, when she looks at that, she has very little thought of God. But now, when all these bad things happen, she's suddenly saying, it's God's fault. God's getting me. God's after me. In verse 19, the woman of the city come to meet her, and they say to you know, is this Naomi? And she responds in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mira, for the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now, her name, Naomi, meant, meant sweet. And they said, is this Naomi, the sweet one? And she says, oh, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter because God's made me bitter. God is after me and God has dealt bitter with me. And look at verse 21, what she says. Again, let me put it up here. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? Here's what I want you to see. What does she say? The Lord has testified against me. She's saying, I deserve it. 
God's sitting there and saying, I've walked away from it and God is out to get me and he has testified and he's brought this against me and he's, you know, he's just a, he's a vindictive God. He's caught me, he's forcing me back, he's rejecting me and but now he's going to Ruth and said, but don't, you don't want to come, you don't want to come back here. And when I look at this, it's actually an attitude I don't think is just limited to this story, to Naomi. It's actually something that I see people today many times. I'll talk to people, many of which maybe don't go to church or they do very irregularly or, you know, they don't really study God's word. They don't live by it. And they seldom think of God. But then when there's a crisis in life, they get angry. God, why did God do this? Why did they become angry at God? They blame God for it. Now, I read that and, or see that. And I think it's, it's tragic. I think part of that is that Naomi kind of knew that she had done things wrong. Why did God do this? And I know I'm kind of guilty and he's vindictive. And so I see myself poorly, but I see God wrong. Now there's a danger here. Because the fact is, as long as we see God this way, we will never be able to have a relationship with him that he desires. Because the fact of the matter is, how we view God will define how we relate to him. If we see him as an angry judge, we're going to fear him. We're going to try to perform and do, and, and we're going to try to earn, but we'll never be close to him, and we're going to fear that he finds us out and that he's going to come get us where we mess up. In fact, let me show you another place where we see this. In verse 21, you know, the women come and greet Naomi, and she say, I went away full, and the Lord has, brought, Lord has brought me back empty. Now think about this for a minute. Remember, why did she go away? She left Bethlehem because there was a famine, and she felt they were empty, and he needed to go find their own way. God had failed, so I'm going to go take it upon myself. But now she's saying, I went away full. And now it's interesting, now after 15, 20 years, she's coming back and she's saying, I went away full, but now God has made me empty. She's still blaming God. You know, before I was full, but now I'm really empty. And she's unable to see that even if she comes back, that God is providing for her. Now let me ask you a question. Did God make her bitter? She wants to change her name. Did God make her bitter? Did God make her empty? Was that God's doing? No, the fact of the matter is, is this whole story we're going to see in spite of the fact that she had been rejecting God, she hadn't been thinking of God, she had walked away from him, she had deserted God, God had not deserted her. In fact, look at the text here. Be, you know, we saw that speech in verses 20 and 21, but look at what is right before that speech. If we go up to verse 19, and so the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, is this Naomi? So they come in, and suddenly you have all these women that come out, and they remember her, and they express concern for her. So, so God is providing, but even more so, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her and returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They come right at the time where there's a harvest, right when God is providing food. But most significantly, she says, God brought me back empty. Very next words. No, she's with Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And God had provided their daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law was there to meet the need. And so you're going to see throughout the story that God is going to provide and meet the needs and bless her through Ruth. Now, what's amazing here is that even though, again, she had walked away from God, God is still loving her and pursuing her in grace. She still fears God's judgment, but God is gracious. Now, the problem that we have, that, or she had, that many of us can still have is that when we're in the middle of crisis, we're unable to see how God is providing, what God is doing, how God is pursuing us. You see, even while she is complaining, you know, God has taken everything from me. God's provision is right next to her. 
Even she's trying to chase her away, but it's, she's right there. And again, it's easy for us to be guilty of this. We can experience a time of crisis or loss and, and, and we can become blind to what God is doing to meet our needs, even become bitter to God. All we know is my life was, used to be sweet and now it's bitter. And we miss the fact that God is there providing for our needs even through the difficult time. The problem is we can become myopic. All we see is the trial. We see the difficulty and we miss God's provision in the midst of the difficulty. How did God provide? Well, the primary thing is through Ruth. And, and, and then we're going to see through Boaz, through his people. You know, again, Naomi's trying to chase Ruth away, but, but God's putting her there. And the story is about God's provision through his people. Now, what's amazing in our own lives, in the same way, we can go through times of crisis. And many of us, we've had those times where we pray, God, where are you? God, you know, I don't feel your presence. I don't see you here. And meanwhile, God is there. He's there through his people. He has people that he raises up and puts into our life, who step into our life, and who love us in a way that is exactly what we need. God is making his presence known. Don't miss it. But we do, and one of the reasons that we do is that we can become focused on our own agenda. We, we become focused on what we think that God should do, and we miss his provision because we're fixated on, on what we had hope. And, and the fact of the matter is, no, God is always at work. He may not work in the way that we expect or hope or even demand, but he's working under the surface. Maybe times that he doesn't make sense, but there's always some provision. But why did, why did Naomi miss this? Why did he miss Ruth? Well, because she had an agenda. She had an expectation. This is what God should do. This is how God should work. And because God isn't doing the things I expect him to do, well, God isn't working. And she can't see what God is doing. Now, some of you might be here, and I, and I don't want to downplay the fact that in times of disappointment, times of darkness, even at this, this morning, I've talked to you know, somebody just a few weeks ago, was, you know, her husband of, of, of 40 plus years just passed away this past week. That's a difficult time. For many people, you're going to have a, a holiday where it's without that loved one, you face uncertainty in this holiday. I don't want to downplay that at all. Those are hard times. But the fact of the matter is God is still with us and pursuing us even in the hard times. God is there. God is working. And we see this here. And this is just chapter one. The rest of the book tells us how God is working even beyond that. Because as a believer, we have a promise of God. Romans 8, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's the promise. That's the character of God. And we may read that and say, man, that sounds great. But it's easy to read in the good times. It's easy to believe when things are going well. But many of us in the hard times, it's hard for us to really believe that's true. But over the years, as I look at God, has, how God has worked in the hard times, I believe that I know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good, who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he then tells us in the next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And basically what he's saying here is this is how God works. Why? Because we know that for those of us have a relationship with Christ, we have Christ. And if we have Christ, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the hope. That's the promise. And we can all know all things work together for good because God has called you. And he hasn't called you into relationship just to drop you now. As it says in Philippians, he who began a good work is faithful to can bring it to completion. His goal is to make you like Christ. 
And God is saying, no, trust me on this. I'm a, I'm a father and you don't always understand what I'm doing. And, and many times things will look bad and feel bad and, and, and it will feel like I'm not there, but realize that I am and everything is accomplishing some purpose. I called you, I predestined you, I, I justified you, I glorified you, I'm on your side. And if we really believe this, what will happen is we'll start to look for God's provision. And when we look for it, we will find it because it's always there. We will find hope but it may not be what we expect. Because a lot of times God's work, as we're gonna see in the story, isn't in the miraculous. Sometimes the miracles are in the mundane. It's in the daily life. The thing is, if you look through Ruth, there are no great miracles. There are no you know, dreams or visions or you know, angels coming and speaking. It's just a story of people living their lives and, and people being faithful. I don't have time to go through the rest of the book, but let me give it, it's not fair to do this, like a two-minute overview of the chapters two through four. It's a great, great story. Um, Ruth and Naomi are back in, in Bethlehem, and Ruth becomes a, a, basically the breadwinner by going out and, and gleaning the fields. It was something that the law allowed for that time to be able to go and to, you know, to get leftovers, in a sense, of the harvest. And we're reading Ruth 2, 3, that it says, she happened onto the fields of Boaz. It just so happened, or maybe somebody was in charge here. And... Um, and Boaz hears about her, hears about her care from Naomi, reaches out to her and says, okay, I'm gonna take care of you, I'm gonna protect you, knowing that this, she would have been you know, abused because of, of her minority status, saying, I'm gonna watch over you. you know, and, and she is amazed that this, this Hebrew person would be so kind and, towards this marginalized woman. And she goes home and, and tells Naomi, and Naomi says, oh, you know, do, Boaz, do you realize? I mean, he's, he's a family member. You know, he's one of the few people that could be a kinsman redeemer. Now, that's again, that's this you know, weird idea in the Old Testament, which basically says you know, everybody had a piece of land that was theirs. It was handed down from generation to generation. If they lost it, which Naomi did when they moved to Moab, this kinsman redeemer had the legal right to buy it back. And he says he's one of the few people to do that, but to do it, he also asked to marry Ruth. And, and children would be in that family line. And, and, and they're basically saying, why would he do that? Why would he give that money? Why would he, why would he care for someone like, you know, a woman of a despised race? But he's one of the few people who could. And Ruth, in an act of incredible courage, basically goes to Boaz and proposes marriage. And, and Boaz says, okay, and he does that. And he buys it back. And, and, and God works in an amazing way. God is there for us. And, and here's what you see. It, nothing was like that, but suddenly, when you look at the whole story, it's an amazing story. And God does the same thing for us. That we look at and we say, it just so happened. And we look back and we say, God did this. God keeps his promises. He's reliable. But part of his keeping his promises, this is the part that's, that's kind of really beautiful. It's really neat. It's not only keeping his promises, it's doing it in a way that redeems even our brokenness. And this is a part of the story that it's not just about how he worked in Ruth's life, who happened to go into Boaz's field and Kinsen Redeemer, but it, but it was something even beyond that. Because we can look at this and we could say, why was Boaz so kind, so compassionate to this, to this mobile woman? He didn't need to be that. Why was he so gracious, so generous? And we can look at the book of Ruth and Ruth talks about how Boaz said, you know, you're kind to Naomi and that tells us part of it. But there's also another element that's not here in Ruth to see it. You got to go to... Matthew. You got to go back to Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus because it tells us something that's incredible here. 
How could she have, he have such a compassionate heart to this Moabite woman to see, you know, reach out and, and, and care for someone from such a despised race? Look back in Matthew. Look at the genealogy. And Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, who was Boaz's mother. Rahab, do you remember her? Rahab the prostitute, the Canaanite, the person from the despised race, the person who showed that great faith. And so suddenly now, he, you know, she married Solomon and they had Boaz. Now, do you think that Boaz knew his mom's story? Do you think it's possible that Rahab ever faced any maybe you know, prejudice by you know, the, the religious Jews of that day and the legalistic Jews? And, you know, do you think that ever happened? Do you think that being raised in that home environment shaped Boaz in any way? That maybe being raised by Rahab, the Canaanite, the one who showed this great faith, but who didn't belong, and seeing that family then when God brings this other woman into his life, which is a Moabite, looked down in a despised group, needy, but showing great faith is saying, that's like my mom. That God prepared him to be able to meet her need way before any, any of the story. I mean, we're looking at it saying, God, where are you now? God, where are you? And, and what we're told is that God was actually lining things up decades before Naomi moved to Moab, before they ever met Ruth, any before of this. God was setting this all up the whole time. And my friends, that's true in our lives. God is working in ways that we cannot imagine. And not only that, but we have Rahab, the one that, again, her history and a prostitute, and how we looked down at that. God redeemed that, and it was because of her history, being a Canaanite, being a prostitute, because of that, and Bill was being raised in that home, that God said, okay, that's what I'm not only going to use you in spite of, I'm going to use you because of. And that's true in our lives as well. The things that we think that keep us out, God says, I will not only save you in spite of those things, but I can take those and I can redeem and I can use it for good. And we see that in so many lives. Do you believe that God can do that? One other thing in here, because when you look at this story, it's an incredible story, but it's also a story that is pointing towards the whole idea of who Jesus was, why he came about salvation, that salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ, by asking by God's grace. Because think about this whole story. Here you have Rahab, who is again a Moabite, who is a widow, has nothing to offer, who has every, doesn't belong in the Jewish people, has, has no reason to have anything. Now think about the story. She goes to Boaz, and what does she do? She asks him to marry her. She went and had brought nothing. She had no credentials, but she came and just said, I have this need, and asked for grace. And what does he do? He marries her. He brings her in. He blesses her because of grace. Now that's a picture of saying this is a foreshadowing of the whole idea of that's what the gospel is all about. See, none of us belong. If we're by merit, none of us are good enough to earn God's favor. But because of God's grace, none of us are bad enough to keep us from God's grace. And, and we see the picture of how we come to Christ, even what Boaz and Ruth does here. It comes and says, I don't bring anything. I don't bring credentials. I just come and ask grace through what God has done for us. He forgives us. My friends, you may be here and, and maybe you've been raised in a perspective of religion and how do I perform and how do I do good and I'm not sure I measure up. And I want to tell you, that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of Christmas. And that's not the message of Jesus Christ. 
It's not about what we do, how we perform, our credentials. It's about us coming and bringing our brokenness and our need and asking God to forgive us through what Jesus did on the cross. Do you have faith? Have you ever trusted in him as your Lord and your Savior? I invite you to do so this morning. There's others that maybe you've done that in the past, but when we look at Moab or, or, or um, Naomi's story, you know, we kind of relate maybe too much that there are times that I didn't see God working. And so I've kind of left Bethlehem and I've gone to Moab and I've kind of done things my own way. And, and, and at first I didn't necessarily mean to go settle, but that's what I've done. And part of you might be almost fearful. If I come back to God, will God love me? Well, you know, maybe he's going to be vindictive because I haven't thought of him and I've rejected him. And, and here's what I want you to realize. This is a story that Naomi had rejected God, but God never rejected her. God was pursuing her. And God is always giving us this invitation of saying, okay, okay, do you realize that Moab is, doesn't work? You know, it's, it's, it works in the short run, it's, but it doesn't work. That's not the path of blessing. So leave Moab and come back to Bethlehem. Come back to a place where you not only accept me as, my, as the forgiver, forgiver, that you accept my forgiveness, but as, my, as your warden king, that you live under my reign and under my rule because that's where the blessing is. And the fact of the matter is we may be here and say, well, God, I don't, but I don't, I don't know really. Boom, he invites you back. We accept that invitation of grace. And today might be a day of saying, God, I agree with you. I've been wrong here, and, but I want to come back in this relationship. And for some, you may be here and you're relating to the part of Naomi and, and like, man, I'm in the middle of darkness and I'm in the middle of crisis and I'm in the middle of loss. And, and here's where I want you to realize what a great Christmas story because it was all about, always about Jesus bringing light into darkness. Into, into times of famine and times of, you know, where the judges ruled and political confusion and loss and death. And, and God's saying, even in those times, I was always there. I'm always there. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? If you look, I'll, I'll help you show my provision and I'm going to carry you through no matter what. And for you, that might be the Christmas message you need today. God is here. He's gracious. Ask him to help you see his provision and he will. Do you believe him enough to ask? And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.